Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Table Podcast. This is our inaugural episode of The Table. Um, This is hopefully going to be a gathering place where we can talk about what people are reading, what they're thinking about, what challenges them, motivates them, why they do the things they do, just kind of interesting topics that are going on in our church and throughout the city. We're really excited about it. Um, today I'm with our inaugural guest, Mr. Josh Shores. Josh, thank you for being here with hey, us. Thank you for having me. Yes, I just kind of, when we were thinking about what the table was going to be, and um, JB came up with this concept of talking about either a topic or a book or an idea or something cool going on, we thought it would be topically based. Um, that was the plan. And between that moment and now, I came across your iPad sitting open to a list of books, and our inaugural episode took a different slant. So Josh is a friend of mine and um, has spent the last few years acquiring a list where he keeps tabs of the books he's reading. Is that kind of the simplest way to— That's the simplest way to put it, is uh, um, anything that's read cover to cover makes, makes the list. Got it. So as I am thinking through, oh, great, who should we reach out to and what kind of books and topics do we want to see? This iPad comes across my life physically right in front of my face, and it's a list of what I thought was some type of anthology used by a school or a canon that was created. And instead, it's your personal book list organized by quarter, by title and author, clearly ranging in topic and um, tell us, like, when did you start doing this? Tell us the story of the list. Well, the, the genesis of this edition of the list, I mean, really goes back. There's interesting. There's some fun. There's some fun circularity here because the first time that I started really documenting my reading and being more disciplined and systematic about it and intentional about it was after uh, two sermons uh, here at Fellowship a decade plus ago when we lived uh, in Memphis before. One by JB and one by Brian Loritz, where uh, G- both were essentially talking about the importance of reading, the benefits of reading. Uh, JB, I think your sermon referenced doing it in community, talking about a book club. Like the next week, I started meeting with a group of guys, and that's still, that's 10 years on. And we've now read over 50 books in 10 years on, uh, where we meet at Celtic Crossing kind of quarterly. And then when I was overseas in London, Um, I I missed a lot of those, but still managed to make it back. But the group has continued on, you know, even to this day. And we've read some books in there that I can honestly say I would not have been likely to get through on my own, like James Joyce. Stuff that's just Ulysses, a a gritty, tough read. Mm -hmm. That that accountability of knowing that the other people were reading it as well, and I needed to come talk about it, was important. So that, and then Brian Loritz talking about how he had an objective at that point of reading, I believe it was 200 pages a day, if I remember correctly. Um, and he didn't always make that, but that's what he tried to do. And I thought, well, I'm not even going to attempt to do that, but it does seem feasible for me to read 100 pages a day. And I actually pulled my. And brother. at that point, how much are you? How much do you naturally read a day? Well, so that's a good point because if you go all the way back, reading has been part of my family from the beginning. And so I guess this gets back to the importance of books in the home, the Mm -hmm. idea that you should just have books around your kids, you should Uh be going to libraries, you should be going to the the bookstore, that sort of thing. Um, It was was not a stretch for me to pick up books in my house and read. My dad loved to read, Mm -hmm. my siblings all loved to read, and it really became a family thing. I have funny memories. Some of the better memories of my childhood are 
we would go to the beach every summer mm -hmm. and there would be lots of frisbee and playing, but then we would all end up in chairs along the waterfront mm. as the waves came in on our feet, everybody with books open. And that's right. true to this day. Yeah. And, and now my kids, my four kids are starting to like join that line of chairs that sit there yeah. reading because it's seen as an attractive, good, interesting thing to do. Totally. Uh, and then the fun, the fun times that we would have with my father, uh, I have three siblings and we, we all loved going to Barnes and Noble and getting a cup of coffee and just browsing. Yeah. And we would browse for an hour or two and just yeah. pick up books and look at books. And yeah. I've always loved ever since then um, being able to walk into a bookstore and just get lost. Mm. Uh, at the time, in particular, I didn't have the ability to buy every book that I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of libraries or bookstores flipping through and mm -hmm. appreciating reading, reading half. Oh, I want to come back to that one. And there was always the proverbial, you know, how tall is the stack of books gotten? Yeah. As, I've, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've had more ability to indulge that uh, uh, itch, if you will. So now the stacks of books are literal stacks of books that like pile up, you know, around my house that my wife rolls her eyes at. So uh, reading was always a familial activity and something that we all love to do. It was yeah. seen as desirable yeah, and something that I always enjoyed, but all, but then about 10 or 11 years ago, you get this challenge of the 200 pages. You think a hundred pages is feasible right to okay. make it more systematic. Gotcha. Because it, it, it's kind of like there's, there's the weekend warrior, way of uh, playing golf or playing tennis where you, you can reach a certain level and you, you can enjoy it and you can go out and do it as a hobby, but you stop progressing. You plateau pretty quickly without huh. feedback, without disciplined feedback and intentionality. Yeah. And there are various you know, methodologies. It depends on how diligent and intentional you want to get with your practice, yeah. but purposeful practice or intentional practice with a coach is what can really take you to a next level, not casual practice. So you took that, you translated that to your reading. We translated that to putting some discipline, intentionality, and rigor and accountability around the reading process. And the 100 pages a day, we, I talked to my brother, who's uh, you know also a pastor, wasn't at the time, but is now, and we agreed to try to keep each other accountable on that mm -hmm. and challenge on that. Mm -hmm. And we were gonna do it for a month. And I ended and up doing in... it for six months. This is 2008, okay. I think. Okay. Um, and I've got that list somewhere. But it was 100 pages a day for about six months. And what I learned, what I realized, is it's it's about uh, wasted time. Uh, so your three, four, five minutes, you can read yeah. five pages yeah, yeah. if you're if you're a, a quick reader. We've I been guess. talking for like five minutes. I'm convicted of about <laughs> ten different areas right now. It's true. I read somewhere that you know it, when you get into that level of reading, um, just in terms of quantity, regardless of quality, you start looking forward to the gaps. You start oh, looking yeah. forward to the lines and the traffic uh, and the waiting not on in traffic, <laughs> waiting in a parking lot for a kid to finish yes. the sport or. Yes. Someone's running late for a meeting. You're like, yes, I get to read chapter four. Yes. Always um, have a book with you. Mm -hmm. uh, or on, these days, you really don't have an excuse because you can have your Kindle app or, or whatever you use on right. a phone, presumably. Right. Uh, so you always have something with you. And I, I don't deal super well with lines or weights or dead time. And so having having a book where I feel like I'm redeeming that is right. important. I travel a fair amount for my job. Right. So sitting on airplanes or in airports, having a book, having something mm -hmm. to read that feels you know beneficial is yeah. uh, a huge piece of that. Well, I'm feeling a little bit gypped because my um, my list only begins in first quarter of 2016. Yeah. So have you kept pretty decent logs since you began? There was a gap in the middle of uh, children, uh, probably of having children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember when exactly it stopped. But 
So we we kept that for the first six months, mm-hmm. and then it kind of died off. But I still read all the time. Had I you just, built up a new habit by then? I well, the habit had taken on a new level of uh, diligence, yeah. if you will. And, and this is something that I very much believe. Like we. You know, the idea of you shape your habits and then your habits uh, uh, shape you that become part of your character. Right. We, to a degree, can decide what we get addicted to if we're diligent enough about it. Mm -hmm. And the question is, we're wired to be addicts. We're wired to worship. And that's a very biblical concept. Like, if you're not worshiping God, you're wired to worship something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what do I want to be Mm -hmm. addicted to? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, healthy activities, intellectually, physically, or potentially harmful or at best neutral kind of waste of time activities. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's where I, I don't I don't want to get too um, theological about it, but the idea No, do. Please the idea do. that well the idea that we've been we've all been gifted and called in a certain way and will ultimately be accountable for what we have done with that mm-hmm. does seem to indicate uh, a certain degree of impatience with lukewarm and being um, these activities that are just neutral, mm-hmm. just killing time, mm-hmm. just twiddling your thumbs. And there's a place for that. Like we, we do need intellectual breaks. So there is a place for just zoning out. And I am a huge proponent of just going for a walk in the woods, for example. Mm-hmm. But sitting around and playing video games all day or sitting around and I love sports. I love keeping up with sports. I like playing sports. But watching four and a half hours of an NFL football game mm-hmm. maybe doesn't necessarily Mm-hmm. Always fit that mm-hmm. bucket, if you will. And so it's a question of how you want to allocate your time and resources and what you want to become addicted to. And and becoming addicted to reading, become addicted to healthy activities, uh, and for me, has been a mm. positive. Are you able to fully let go of um, intentionality if you're when you're walking in the woods, for example? I'm able to when I'm mountain biking in the woods. You are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because because you just... have to be focused or you right. run into a tree. So maybe it's the focus on the thing, on the small thing that's allowing your brain to relax on the other things. No, I, well, two different. there's two different pursuits there. Uh, and we're getting way off of, of the reading topic. But I, Well, what I'm seeing about you, the little that I know you, is that a lot of these concepts with your list apply to multiple areas of your life. So I don't think we're very far off true. at all. This is true. So. Well, I, I'd say for learning, for acquiring knowledge or skills, we, we have kind of a set amount of super deep focus in your brain in a day. Mm-hmm. And, and it varies with people, but it's not eight hours, it's not 12 hours. There's a right. certain amount of capacity for like super diligent focus. Mm-hmm. So just like there's a certain amount of capacity for decision-making. There's mm-hmm. like a decision-making muscle in your brain. So cutting mm-hmm. out uh, superficial decisions from your life, mm-hmm. whether it's making decisions about what clothes you wear in the morning or what you're going to eat. Like mm-hmm. that's all decision-making capability that can then be allocated mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is an example of consolidation of skills and knowledge and memory happens when you are daydreaming or relaxing or sleeping. Mm-hmm. So that walk in the woods could be super valuable as a consolidating Period. Which is why I'm asking you the question. Like, do you feel like you pursue that walk in the woods because you're like, okay, now it's time for me to allow my brain to consolidate its feelings and process what I've learned and therefore move it down from short term memory to long term memory? Or are you able to just go walk in the woods? Well, I think when you're walking in the woods and your mind is wandering, that's happening subconsciously. Mm -hmm. So So you see it as valuable. Yes. But you are able to just exist when you're there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of churning, pondering. Mm-hmm. And the, but this is, that's a personality thing. Some people are much more 
uh, wired to churn, and some people are much more wired to live on the surface. And for mm -hmm. better or for worse, I'm, I'm more of a surfacey type of um, processor. But what I've found in that, and this is a personality uh, factor of myself, is you know there's a lot happening in the subconscious, and so it's like if you feed enough information in, and then put yourself in the right state and the right frame of mind for your subconscious to churn through scenarios and calculations, at least in my experience, the answer or an answer, or at least a probability distribution tends to pop into my conscious at an appropriate time. But you mm -hmm. need you need the uh, the rest and the change of pace scheduled in if mm -hmm. you can control your schedule. So all, all that bringing back to um, why the discipline of having a list or why the discipline of keeping track of these things was so valuable for reading is that that accountability, um, even if it's just on a page, a piece of paper that you're looking at, even if it's not another individual, mm -hmm. is enormously effective mm -hmm. at keeping you on track and keeping you from wasting time. So do you still kind of stick, you know, or 10 years later, do you still kind of stick to page numbers? Mm. So a few years ago, when the list that you've seen, I, I and there's, there's not a right or wrong here, but I pivoted towards keeping track of number of books. And the reason that I did that is because the objective I set was to read a book a week. Mm -hmm. And so 52 books in a year is the goal. And mm -hmm. I know that the average of those, some might be 150 pages, but some will be 800 or 1,000 pages. So I know the average of those will be two. 250, 300, probably somewhere mm -hmm. in there. Uh, so that, that kind of backs into your page numbers. Right. Um, but That's what I was wondering. But the benefit of keeping track of page numbers is, frankly, there are a lot of books that they're not worth reading cover to cover, particularly a lot of <gasps> modern books. Gotcha. And so there might be a great chapter or a great Section. several pieces of information in there, but do you really need to take the full amount of time to grind through it? Or there are a lot of books where there's phenomenal truths repeated 15 times. Uh -huh. So do you really need to read the 15 times repeated? So there's definitely an argument for just keeping track of page numbers as well. But this list that I'm, I'm looking right at is compiled of only books you've read cover to cover. Correct. Yeah. So speaking of the um, variety in this list, you know, we have, um, let's see, I've got is, The Return of the King by Tolkien, but I uh, also have a Croatia travel book. Um, I also have the Hunger Games trilogy. I also have... A book called Grit. Um, so I do, one of my favorite things about looking at this list was um, how much it, I feel like, reveals about you. I mean, there are times where you could say, oh, clearly either one of his children decided to read The Hunger Games or that movie came out. Um, clearly, he got into the Harry Potter series again here because yeah, those kids again. the children weren't yeah. old enough to read it the first <laughs> yeah. time he read it. Um I loved that when we were looking at this the first time together, you pointed out, well, look right here. This is when it was the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, that, was, that was stress test. Right. That, so that how much of it to you screams like, oh, I remember that time in my life? So the, it's, it's interesting, and, and it's this is, as I commented to you earlier, it's a very personal thing to have your, your, your kind of reading list mentioned uh, because you, whether it's looking at the books on somebody's wall or the books that they're reading – there's a huge amount that you can infer about a person from what they read. Totally. Or don't read. Totally. And so, uh, you know, it's almost like you have to go down the whole list. The ones that you just mentioned all were because my kids have reached the age where they were watching or reading The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. And 
on on the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, it was I needed to read them before they could read them. Now they mm -hmm. were I, I enjoyed them, I thoroughly enjoyed mm -hmm. them, but I, I had to read those before the kids do. So that was a mark of life. My kids are coming of age to a degree. Mm -hmm. And then going back to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I had read that a couple times as a kid or a teenager, but as my oldest read through the entire trilogy this summer, I, I picked it back up to read along with her and I was floored. It's just such a great example of different periods in your life. And this oh is an argument gosh. for rereading yes. books, yes. good books, classic books, not any book. A lot you can read and, and you're done with, but um, at different seasons of life, because totally. they have very different information in them. And man, the truths that Tolkien wove through the Lord of the Rings really impacted me at a very different level at this stage of my life than they mm. did as a teenager, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think with classics too, there are so many that we want to expose our children to and put them on the canon in high school yep. without too many life experiences. Oh yeah. And then if you get the opportunity to read them as an adult, oh. I mean, I will be weeping over something that I yeah. absolutely resisted yep. when I was 17. And well, one of the best books I've read over the last few years, and, and that might even be back all the way back in 16 was Les Mis. And, oh. and Les Mis is the classic yes. grind through it in high school book. But reading it as an adult and understanding um, the, the picture of grace that's portrayed by Jean Valjean and just the overarching image mm -hmm. that Victor Hugo captures. And again, I was reading in English, not even the original French, which would probably be even more powerful. Just blew me away. It, yeah. it moved Les Mis up into kind of like a you know, top five, top ten list of, of great books, yeah. which I did not appreciate at all. Do you feel like, because I, I mean, my experience with Les Mis is all gospel. I mean, mm -hmm. the whole thing you've got, you can do older brother, younger brother with Javert and Jean Valjean. Mm -hmm. You can do um, redemption with um, Eponine. You can mm -hmm. do true love versus earthly love. Yeah, yeah. You can even do, um, you know, when you're fighting the, the whole first act, the people are fighting for their freedom from, right. from the tyranny of France, and then the second act, they're all fighting from the tyranny of being here on earth nah, and longing for heaven. I mean, the Crimson Thread is ridiculously strong there. I mean, the majority of these books would not be books that, you know, the Gospel Coalition would say, read before you die. <laughs> so how often do you find that you're reading a book not intended to show the Crimson Thread of the Gospel, but one that screams it? Yeah. Well, don't forget, my favorite example is The Priest. Who I haven't read the uh, so Oh, the priest in Jean Valjean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Who, you know, Jean Valjean has stolen, stolen from the him. most valuable yes. work that he has. And he says, and in instead, front of the cops. He says, I gave it to him. Yes. Right? That is such an image of grace, and it totally redeems Jean Valjean's life mm -hmm. and has ripple effects mm -hmm. all out into the rest of the story. And to me, it's such a phenomenal portrayal of the impact of grace generationally down the line in a way that we probably never will understand. Mm -hmm. You know, you won't have a novel written about mm -hmm. your life and then the people that it rippled into most likely. Mm -hmm. uh, but that to me sums it all up. And, and how did I end up, you know, I went through, I probably read 60% nonfiction and, and kind of like 30 to 40% uh, I did notice that. Fiction. I was shocked by so it. So more nonfiction than fiction. And of the nonfiction, it's mostly history and biographies. And finance and business. Well, with finance and business, but I've found, so I'm in finance and business. And and back to that idea that there are very few uh, great modern books written. The books that have stood the test of time tend to be much more valuable. And mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's not a lot new under the sun, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I've read most of the great finance and business books. Mm. Um 
So there aren't. I've read none. You know, I can go back <laughs> the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, 90s. A lot of these classic books were written. So you see on my list, there's actually less like finance books because there's not a lot new to say yeah. in the investing world where I operate. Now, there are always great, interesting biographies coming out. And I have a backlog of biographies of great people that I would like to read. Um, and I love biographies. And I love... Um, uh, you know, some of the most impactful books that I've read recently, we were talking a little bit earlier about just learning and, you know, grit and peak um, and uh, let's see, you can edit this part out as I just kind of go down the list to think through. I mean, Principles by Ray Dalio, Scale by Jeffrey West, Peak by Anders Ericsson. You can see I went through a phase there, mm -hmm. all three of those. Uh, you know, on emotional intelligence, like you could say that principles is a business book, but it's not really, it's much more of like a life principles book by somebody who's put a lot of thought in that in Ray Dalio. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that really, really insightful. Yeah. Um, but you read, you're reading those and then right after Norse mythology. Yeah. And Norse mythology is, uh, I, I uh, picked it up in a bookstore. Yeah. You know, and, and it was interesting. Uh, I, I think there's, there's value in, in knowing to me, mythology is history. And knowing in in a in a intellectual sense, not in a literal sense. So knowing, I think C.S. Lewis says that uh, the the value of myth is that it pulls away all the wrappings from core truths that sometimes we miss. Interesting. Right? So he was a big yeah. proponent of myth, and mm -hmm. obviously he based a lot. North, he mm -hmm. loved Tolkien. They mm -hmm. love Norse mythology. That actually may have been related to the Lord of the Rings. That might huh. be why I picked up that, that makes one, sense. Actually, um, so so history, Roman history, Greek history, classical history, antiquity. The Croatia book you mentioned earlier actually was a, a, the history of Croatia because it's right on the edge of uh, east versus west. And so we right. spent time in Croatia this summer right. and understanding the history of the Balkans uh -huh. was really helpful in, in framing all of that. So Okay. So if you love a bookstore and um, do, do you ever kind of, you know, just walk in to enjoy hanging out at a used bookstore in Croatia, let's say? and walk around and then just say, okay, my next book is going to be determined today and without intentionality. I mean, so much of this, so much of this list does say so much about you and where you were and what you were yeah. thinking about. How often do you let the book choose you? Definitely. Uh, fairly, fairly regularly. So I, I'm generally, I'm not a read one book at a time person. Generally, I'll have three or four oh, books going Oh, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear about your style. And so I, I go back and forth on three or four books. Usually, I have a book that I'm reading to fall asleep at night. Okay. And and that gets back to the Kindle versus hard copy debate. That's usually on an e-reader, which oh. is slower reading. You read faster on paper. But really right? bad for your brain before you fall asleep. Good about paper. I'd love well, for you to switch depends, that habit. It depends on what you're reading. So I tend to read history uh -huh. When I'm falling asleep at night. So I went through Shelby Foote's three-volume series of the Civil War, okay. which is 3,500 pages altogether. So I don't remember. It's huge. And I read that at night as I was falling asleep. And again, I'm very aware that that, that is not necessarily the definitive history of the Civil War. I, I as much read it because moving back to Memphis, he was from Memphis. The perspective that he brings is, is you know, uh, uh, his view on the world. Mm -hmm. But... It was just one of those, like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire or, uh, you know, In Search of Lost Time by Proust. Like there's these monumental pieces, uh, Churchill's history of World War II. Mm -hmm. Like just kind of like you need to have read these at some point. So I, mm -hmm. I, I read Shelby Foote. I did it at night for like 18 months. Mm -hmm. And it was phenomenal to fall asleep to. Yeah. I looked forward to getting in bed. 
Yeah. And then I would read, you know, a few pages until uh-huh. I felt tired and then fall asleep. And yeah. then when I finished the last one, it was like I was in mourning because oh. um, it had become such a part of my routine. So what is your put, put myself to bed book right now? Well, I've been going through uh, uh, Roman and Greek history. Okay. So history really is like your bedtime History is favorite. the bedtime stuff. That's so good. History is the bedtime um, stuff. That's because it's good. It's not so interesting like a novel that it's going to like – peak you and keep you really dialed in and keep you awake. Mm-hmm. But yet to me, it is, it's still interesting and fascinating. Um, just kind of toes that line just enough on making yeah. so sleep. This year you reread, I'm assuming reread because we all had to read it, Antigone. Yeah. What made you pick up Antigone? Uh, I was going through Greek uh, history. Gotcha. And that, uh, you know, Sophocles plays uh, a, a pretty, a pretty central role in uh, Hellen- kind of 300, 400 BC Greece, and that led me to pick up Antigone, which is um, was seen at that time as kind of like the the, the quintessential example of um, the of the art. I mean, mm-hmm. that was held up as he- here is the dramatists par mm-hmm. excellence, Sophocles, mm-hmm. Antigone. Mm-hmm. So I was like. Need to, I need to go back and read that. And that, you know, that is on the low end of the page count. You know, the, the without precedent on John Marshall's eight times the length or ten times the length of Antigone. So they balance out, you know, a short yeah. book and then a long book, right? Yeah. yeah. And did you, when you were reading it, did you remember reading it in high school? Vaguely. Uh-huh. Vaguely. So completely different experience. Yeah, it was a totally different experience yeah. to read that. What now. has been the one that shocked you the most that you reread and you were surprised to know how much it could move you or how much you enjoyed mm. it well, the or Lord disliked the it. Rings, you don't have to The Lord it. of the Rings was a surprise because I loved it as a teenager, but it blew me away as an adult. Mm-hmm. Les Mis, that I already yeah. mentioned, would have been a big one. Yeah. I went back a few years ago when we were still in London and, and read almost all of Dickens' uh, That's what I was going to ask you. So Dickens, they weren't all together, though. I mean, I saw It was a year. Here. I wanted to do it in 17. You read David Copperfield, Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, and Christmas Carol, but they were spread out. Yeah. What brought on the Dickens thing? Uh, leaving London. Oh. Yeah. When I knew that that we were moving from London back to the U.S., oh, I, that's uh, I picked sad. up Dickens, and and you know, really, A Tale of Two Cities is another one of those that blew me away from reading it as an adult. Mm-hmm. That's an also just very powerful story that almost you are doing an injustice reading it as a fifteen or sixteen year old because you can't comprehend. I think it. multiple of them we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. So so Dickens was strong. And that was a great way to kind of mark London. And, you know, I finished it out reading The Christmas Carol, another good short one at the end of the year, mm-hmm. right, just before Christmas. Um, what do you think about Their Eyes Were Watching God's, one of my very favorites? Phenomenal. What, what made you pick that one up? Do you remember? I don't remember what made me pick that one up. I think, so Peace Like a River. Hmm was handed to me by my sister Love this it. summer. So again, part of the whole family history thing is is there is a, a used book sale at Polly's Island at the beach that we go to every year on oh, the fourth of July. Like the stop. library gets rid of all those all their books. Yeah. And my whole extended family are we're all we're all dorks and we all love to go get a deal. And so we were walking around this uh big used book sale and we end up picking books for each other as much as we're picking books for ourselves. And my sister um, handed me Peace Like a River, and my brother was standing there, and they both said, have, you know, have you read that? 
And when I said no, my sister actually said, I am so jealous of you for the opportunity to read it for the first time. Oh, my So word. with that, that that's a great example, though, of that. letting the books find you. Totally. It was not on my radar screen. Yeah. I never even heard of that book. Somehow I, it just hadn't crossed my radar screen. So I read that, and and it it really blew me away. Now it's fiction, but it's also a phenomenal depiction of, of, of grace. And um, that led me circuitously to their eyes were watching God. And I can't remember exactly how, mm -hmm. but it was mm -hmm. just, it was kind of like following the rabbit trail. Yeah. And I do that a Which lot I with love. the reading. I have a mix of intentional trying to fill holes in my knowledge base mm -hmm. and then serendipity mm -hmm. of letting things come to me. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Um, I did text Caitlin, your wife, and I just said, hey, like, you know, I'm going to be chatting with Josh a little later about his list. What should I ask him? And she said, um, just please get him talking about the way this love of books has transferred to the kids. Uh-huh. Um, so besides the kind of them being used to seeing you all reading together, she made it sound like the actual process of that transference has been cool. Is that a story you can tell yeah. us? Yeah, well, it's been each kid is different. With four kids, it, it, it all happens um, in, in unique ways. But I, I do think there's some something to be said for the consistency of setting a framework that allows them to acquire a love of reading. Because we have four kids, each with very different personalities, um, several of which probably would not naturally, you wouldn't call them like naturally gravitating towards the written word. Mm -hmm. But they've grown up in an environment where books are, are around and available. And we've always read to them at night before they go to bed, basically every night. Uh, and so that's just kind of part of their routine, part of their mental makeup. And then they've seen that we all read. I mean, there's probably nothing you know more powerful than seeing your whole kind of family sitting on a beach, like reading books together, mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I should, I, that's probably desirable. They're young enough where they still think we're cool. Mm -hmm. At least the younger ones are. So they want to emulate that. And the mm -hmm. older ones, it's, it's the DNA has been transferred enough virally so that they, uh, they believe it themselves. And um, all, yeah, all, well, th all four of the kids really have picked up a love, a love of reading. And I would just encourage people in that it wasn't like a natural thing. Like they just picked up books. It was having books around. It was reading to them at night. And it was modeling to them that this is something to be pursued. And they picked it up themselves. We never had read this book. Like we didn't have assignments mm -hmm. to go read. Mm -hmm. But we've always had you know kind of quiet time, rest time for them in the middle of the day from when they were little kids where they have to go to their room and they don't have devices. Yeah. There's not a whole lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> so they, yeah. they just kind of ended up picking up books and, and, and reading them. Totally. So Very cool. My 11-year-old my just finished The Unabridged Little Women oh. and um, loved it. So yeah. that's a great testament to, I mean, if she reads it again 20 years from now, it'll mean something very different to uh -huh, her uh -huh. than it did as an 11-year-old. But uh -huh. she she yeah. was able to make Isn't that the it. one, and there are a lot, I think there's a lot in that book about, um, you know, it's okay to go through hard things in life because I'm, I'm learning how to steer my ship. Hmm. I'm learning how to drive my boat. Hopefully. I think it's steer my ship. But, like, what a great yeah. takeaway for an 11-year-old. Hopefully she applied that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she's she's pretty amazing. I'm sure she did. Do you ever think about writing? Um, I have a healthy respect for the writing process and the writing calling. So while there is part of me that finds that intriguing, there's a much bigger part of me that has the humility to realistically look at it and say, I don't have anything to say. So huh. maybe someday 
if I actually have something that's worthwhile to say. Too many books are written. Just a little side note for our listening audience. Josh also said that before we began this podcast. So <laughs> I'm not sure I believe it, but go ahead. Well, it's it's a question of, uh, I, you know, Tim Keller didn't write any books for decades while he preached and learned and taught mm. and did what he was supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden he seemed like he emerged fully formed to people who had never heard of him writing amazing deep content book one after another because he had spent most of his life decades reading imbibing thinking working through concepts to where he actually had something to say yeah well i've so heard it said before that, that great writers write from their scars instead of their cuts okay you know that if you're not too careful to act out of the emotion of what you're going through and in the moment of processing you know, it's not going to be the type of literature that stands the test of time, but no. that it's the scars that really provide the yeah, depth. Could, could be. I just ask because it's so obvious in what you're sharing with us now and just our friendship that you just love doing hard things. You know, that it's the almost the difficulty of a challenge that right. draws you into it. So to me, if you saw that as something that, that you do have the healthy respect for, it would almost mm. make you more likely mm -hmm. to write mm -hmm. in in the right season of life. I, I think there, um, it's easy to get spread too thin, trying to do too many different things and not do any of them well. Mm -hmm. So maybe the weekend warrioring maybe they'll become again. a season where. And again, I'm not. I don't want to criticize the weekend warrior thing. That there's there's great value to be had by doing something at a competent level with friends and community for enjoyment and being healthy and doing it. So it's just that's not you're not going to improve right doing it that way so yeah. it depends on what you got to put it in that is. category yes and yeah. be safe with it exactly there. Yeah. right and i certainly have things in my life that fit that category where i'm perfectly happy to be at this level and not continuing uh -huh. to like improve. your pickleball i will never be a great pickleball player yeah okay yeah. good to know um <laughs> will be a middling at best <laughs> where do you think I, you've mentioned a couple of times that maybe you haven't experienced any modern day great literature but when you are as open-minded as you are to your approach on reading, where do you think the holes are in literature? Where do you think, where do you think the gaps are? I wish there was more blank. Hmm. Well, it's a cliche to say, you know, where is the great American novel? Um, because there's a lot of debate about you know, what, what that could be. I, where are my personal gaps or where are there gaps in the literary? Oh, we can canon? go either way. Yeah. So my personal gaps are, um, there's still loads. I love that you know your personal gaps. Like, that's crazy. Go well, ahead. I, I think personal gaps are history. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an appreciation for uh, Eastern history nearly to the same degree that I do to Western history. I'd like to spend some time mm -hmm. on that. Um, I think there are always gaps in philosophy and theology. You can never finish reading uh -huh those topics. I mean, that's a lifetime. There's there's way more books out there that are phenomenal that I haven't read than there are books that I have read. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, it's a lifetime of effort. To what do you, when off. you like just kind of glance at the list, what do you see as one that was like, yeah, didn't need to read that one? Does that happen to you a lot? <laughs> well, wanna... Or do you give up and then they don't make the list? You know what I mean? Like maybe just inherently in the fact that you mm -hmm. only put one down that you read cover to cover, Maybe you would never waste your time and go cover to cover if you thought it was bad. Right, right. One that I would say, yeah, I think I, mean, I you don't would say pick them general... up and, and work through them unless they're right. Unless they're pretty good. Oh, Heretics by Chesterton disappointed me. Okay. 
Um, you know, he wrote two books in, in, in quick succession on uh, orthodoxy and heretics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the heretics books I kind of felt like was him just enjoying. He was one of the great wits and, and uh, prose writers of the 20th century, and I think he was just having fun with that. But there wasn't no. a lot. I, I didn't get a lot out of it. Not I was kind of like, I could have done without reading that one. But yeah. I love Chesterton generally. Okay. And I think in my list of just the past couple of years, I don't think I only saw one C.S. Lewis. But I know you're a huge C.S. Lewis fan. I am. Did you just kind of do that all earlier in the list? Those were – I read all of those before this current list starts. Yeah, mm-hmm. the only one that's on here, yeah. I should probably go back and – because that's and, when I feel like dip you, back into Lewis. week for week, you feel like you're reading a different book depending mm-hmm. on where you are yeah. emotionally. Could definitely go back to that. And that's why, you know, if anybody, I'm certainly not holding this up as a uh, definitive list or it's more just should be an encouragement to people that um, there's this huge body of knowledge that people have put down on paper. And it's exciting that you can always easily you know, access it and benefit from it. It should be an encouragement. I mean, I in no way think that I am reading in any exceptional way. I, I mentioned to you that, you know, my brother reads four times as much as I do. Uh, um, but still, like, I mean, we're talking. four books a week versus me reading one book a week. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying this very 50, humbly. 52 books. I know you're speaking humbly, but it's still like just a much higher standard than, let's say, average. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, your brother, Matt, I feel like he was, texting with you the other day and letting you know I'm on track to, is it 210? 210 books this, this year. year? Yeah. So, um, now, now but he, you did say that's what he does for a living pretty he's, much. He's a pastor. He basically, I, I would be curious to total up how many pages I read all day mm-hmm. versus how many books I read all day because yeah. I, I, I read multiple other things during yes, the day. But those don't that count. are required. So, again, I don't know. I'd no, count it. I was no, keep, keeping some kind of list. I'd be like, I read article on page two, be <laughs> at the commercial appeal this morning. There's no law or, or totally. rigidness and about that's, it to me. That's why I want to talk to you about it. But um, I feel like just in speaking of reading in general, um, there are like schools of thought that really do contradict each other. And I guess that's because they're probably not yeses or nos. They're spectrums. Mm-hmm. But like talk to me on a few of those. Okay. Like do you see reading as – where on the spectrum between escapism and connection? Right. Where do you see reading falling? Well, I, at first, I, I like the way you put that, that, that it's a spectrum, because I tend to think that the, the majority of things that we deal with in life are somewhere on a, on a spectrum or a probability too. distribution. Right There's there only a few closed fists truths mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you can plant your flag on. So, I mean, big debates on connecting versus escaping, I guess, uh, benefit – uh, benefit to both. I think there's a, there is some benefit to the escaping part. That actually made me think of a um, another C.S. Lewis quote. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned C.S. Lewis because uh, you know he's got some of the best quotes uh, from a believer's perspective yeah. on on the value of all this stuff. Um, uh, he says, "We say, okay, here it is." He says, "We read to know we are not alone." Mm, yeah, exactly. And so this idea of uh, whether it's fiction or whether it's you know biography, a, a bigger understanding of the world, there's something to be said for just the escapism that comes with getting lost in a great story. Right. And I certainly have, have been a, guilty in the past of only reading nonfiction and devaluing the worth of fiction. Mm. 
And really, Lewis and how he thought about that was a big factor in helping me to appreciate the benefit of um, seeing the world, seeing reality, seeing some of the deeper questions of the human condition through a fictional perspective, because there's mm -hmm. an ability to create a whole world mm -hmm. to illustrate Truths. some of these truths and points. Which like is we what Jesus did. Like we talking about with Les Mis, right? right? It's such a powerful example and so impactful in a way that uh, a dry theological treatise Never would be, mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the, on the big debates, I, I think there's room for both escaping, yeah. you don't uh, fall learning, either way. Being what intentional, about, fiction, nonfiction, you need it all. Yeah. What about the spectrum of reading makes you feel small in a really big world, and reading makes you feel big? Oh, I feel I feel very much on the big side. Like the when you when you get a concept or an idea. Um, that seems new or that you understand in a deeper way or that you've never thought of before. It, 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 it excites me in a way, in kind of a visceral sense. Uh, it's, it's hard to, to describe. So those big ideas make you, I think they make me feel part of something that's much bigger than, than myself because that's the reality of you know, who we are. I mean, from, yeah. a, uh, from a theological, from a faith-based point of view, we are part of something much bigger and more important than ourselves. Yeah. From a Western consumer point of view, we are the sum total, the Western culture uh -huh. would say you are the sum total of your purpose and existence. So it's almost like in your reality of how small you are, you feel big. Yes. Yeah. Because I've heard people talk about that. Like that is one of the reasons Memphis is sometimes a hard place to live because there aren't any mountains or vast bodies of water to remind your subconscious that you are small. Yeah. You know, I'd, we could use with some more nature. Right. There, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but okay, I can see that. Like you can just spin it around where it's really both. Yeah. By being small, you feel big. I love that. Um, so I, I asked Wills, my oldest, last night when I was going to bed, I told him that I was going to be talking to you on the podcast. And Wills, um, I, I don't want to say my son is addicted to reading, but like there are multiple times where we are disciplining him for reading too much. <laughs> so I think I need a little bit of a lecture from you. But um, I said, what do you want to ask him? You know, the first thing he said is, what's his favorite genre? He wanted to ask you that. So if you have a pop out answer of that, history. I think history. Okay. And then um, he said, how I want to know how he describes himself as a reader. And I want to follow up with this a little bit. I was like, okay. But what do you mean by that? I feel like he could go any direction with that. He was like, well, I want to know if sometimes he feels a little bit of shame that he reads so much or if sometimes he wants to, like, show people that he does it and it and it really is a good thing. I was like, you know, do you – is that because you feel that way? You're like, yeah, it kind of depends. Like, sometimes I don't really want anybody to know that I'm reading and sometimes I do want someone to know that I'm reading. So I love sitting here across from – um a really great guy who I enjoy as, you know, someone who he can look up to in that. But what would you say to kids or to parents who are raising kids in an attempt to let them be themselves, you know, and let them know that it's something that you don't want to do it for the sake of it being beneficial, right? You just want to do it because it's it's a, a great joy that we're given here. Yeah. Well, there's in our there's lives. there's a line there somewhere on where the discipline becomes beneficial, particularly for kids. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily, as long as it's in a healthy sense, discourage them from um, doing something 
for not perfectly right reasons when it's a good thing for them to do because it might it might help build that that habit mm-hmm. uh, yeah as Paul says I don't care if they preach the gospel for good reasons or, or, or bad reasons mm-hmm. so long as the gospel is preached right mm-hmm. I think if they're if they're pursuing something like this that's a good beneficial practice I wouldn't worry too much if he's doing it to impress you know you for example I think a lot of what our kids do is to impress us mm-hmm. until they reach a certain age um, have I ever felt embarrassed by how much I read no um, and I would suggest that, you know, any, any environment where somebody feels embarrassed about how much they read probably says more about the environment than it does about, you know, the, the validity of the pursuit or mm-hmm. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, I think it's great that he is on a track to become a lifelong reader and learner. And that's going to be a hugely important thing, particularly over the next 30 years as our kids become adults. Uh, the knowledge economy will not allow people to acquire a set of skills at age 18 or 20 or 25 and be done. Mm-hmm. There's going to be continual learning, learning and growth and, yeah. and uh, evolution required to mm-hmm. stay relevant. Mm-hmm. And I don't think many of those perhaps, you know, coding, but coding is a different form of reading in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many of those don't require lots of reading and study. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's. He's on a good start. Well, yeah, and I feel like when he asks, how would you describe yourself as a as a reader, I feel like we've spent the last podcast figuring that out. Um, Caitlin's other question for you was, have you ever gotten rid of a book? <laughs> <laughs> I have a very hard time getting rid of getting rid of books, which which probably, yeah, she bugs her to, to figure out what to do with them. A few. I've gotten uh-huh. rid of a few over the years uh-huh. that were just were not I was not gonna ever dip back to. Um, but I love having a collection of books that I can refer back to and a collection of books that I have not read because mm-hmm. all those books that are sitting out there unread are you know, future things to be discovered and, uh, and dip into. So Awesome. Well, future things to be discovered all over the place. Um, thanks for talking with us. You're welcome. I think thanks this for, is really uh, exciting. And maybe me. we'll choose one or two of these on this list that I'll keep to myself that we can talk about later here on the table. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.